1: Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. It's Tuesday the 26th of May, and today I'm speaking with two scientists from the Francis Crick Institute. Rupert Beale, the group leader of the Crick's Cell Biology of Infection Laboratory, who has written two pieces about COVID-19 in the LRB, and has been on this podcast twice before. Hello, Rupert. Hello. And Sonia Gandhi, the group leader of the Crick's Neurodegeneration Biology Lab. Hello, Sonia. Hello. And thank you both for joining us. And would I be right in thinking, to to start with, that your other work has been put on hold for the moment, and that you've both been working more or less flat out on, on the coronavirus for the past few weeks?
2: Uh, yes, that's right. Um, from my point of view, I'm a clinician scientist. So I work as a consultant neurologist at University College Hospital London and the National Hospital for Neurology. Um, and then my laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute. Um, here we run a research program in uh, new age generation, specifically Parkinson's disease. So since the since just before the lockdown, um, our work has entirely been related to COVID-19 testing uh, from the scientific perspective. And um, from the clinical perspective, I have been uh, working in the hospital, seeing patients mainly with neurological problems.
1: And is that inpatients in or outpatients? And how does the the protocols for for protecting them from coronavirus in hospital, has that changed?
2: Well, I think... Both as a doctor and a scientist, life changed pretty dramatically overnight when the urgency of of COVID-19 was realised. And in a hospital, that meant that we moved all of our elective work, so non-urgent work, to remote working. So all of those outpatient clinics were conducted and are still are conducted by telephone. We also uh, reorganised the way in which we do our inpatient work. So the inpatient urgent work um, is now uh, performed in a, in a very different way with reorganization of rotors so that there are frontline rotors and backup rotors of people um, so I've done weeks where I'll be on call at the hospital um, and there the zones of where patients go to uh, if they if it's not clear whether they have a diagnosis of covid nineteen or not have all been very carefully thought through um, so our inpatient work has changed dramatically as well um, and I suppose the whole of the hospital has really responded to managing um, the COVID-19 during this time. And uh, what we've seen is a real drop off of the normal cases that we would normally see in neurology. A lot of people have stayed at home during this time um, and presenting much later with their conditions. And then the second thing we've seen is um, an increase in the number of conditions related to COVID-19 complications that, that weren't necessarily recognised before uh, the pandemic so our clinical work has changed considerably
1: right and is that's neurological complications i mean for your you for your patients
2: yes for our patients um the it's been a it's been a, a an interesting time and also a challenging one i think the complications um, of covid 19 that affect the nervous system haven't been fully understood, it's fair to say, um, but they fall into a number of different categories. We think that there there is some um, direct effect of the uh, virus, the coronavirus in the nervous system. We know that because there are symptoms such as anosmia, losing the sense of smell, but certain patients can suffer from headaches, uh, seizures. Then there are A second set of problems where the immune system responds to the virus in in an unusual way. Um, And we see that with many other viruses, but also with with COVID-19. So we see immune complications. And then I think the third set of problems have been related to the fact that people with COVID-19 can develop a lot of uh, thrombotic complications. That's blocking of the blood vessels. And so there is a higher uh, there's a higher incidence of strokes um, and also blood clots in both the venous and the arterial system and we see that across many organs but we definitely see that in the brain as well
1: so can that be treated with blood thinners and those sorts of
2: well yeah uh, so often if, if somebody has complications in the nervous system um, of covid19 they will also have coexistent complications elsewhere so they may have blood clots in their lungs as well or um Um, elsewhere in the body and so they may need standard blood thinning treatment. In the brain it's particularly complicated because there's always a risk of what we would call hemorrhagic transformation. So where you have a blood clot it can also bleed around that area Um, and that's then made even more complicated by uh, blood thinning medication. So um, it's a very very careful balance of of how to manage uh, blood clots in the context of infections.
1: But presumably as with with all fields of medicine a huge amount has been learned in this relatively short time, and that treatments are and therapies are developing and and better than they were two months ago
2: i think the, um, certainly the approaches are being learned, so I think there's a huge amount that's been gained through the communications between different countries and different hospitals about uh, what to look out for um, in patients with with COVID nineteen, how best to approach the diagnosis and management of that? But um, in terms of very specific therapies for COVID nineteen complications, I think we're really reliant on the ones that we already have, um, but just deploying them in maybe more strategic and and uh, more refined ways.
1: So that and suggests that still the main has aim has to be to suppress the spread of the virus and prevent people catching it. It, In terms of that, the the lockdown is easing, perhaps rather faster than it might otherwise have done, given the revelations about certain government advisors' exceptional behaviour in the previous phase of the lockdown. So what do you think we can expect to see in terms of case numbers and so on over the next couple of weeks? Are numbers likely to go up again, or is it hard to say?
2: I think the lockdown has been effective in suppressing the number of cases without a doubt. And we, we've seen that through the testing that we do um, at the Francis Crick Institute. And it is therefore absolutely the right time to be thinking about how, uh, how lockdown can be eased. Uh, what I think would add a lot more reassurance and confidence to coming out of lockdown and to avoid a, a second wave of cases would be to know that our testing strategies are very are very robust. So knowing that con- testing, contact tracing and isolating is, is clearly in place, um, understanding that we have the capacity to test and perform enhanced surveillance and test widely asymptomatic and symptomatic staff, being able to generate COVID-free or COVID-protected zones within healthcare, um, many of these vehicles are going to be absolutely vital to implementing safe lockdown, safe emergence from lockdown. Um, And I think if they are in place, then, then while the expectation will be that there will be more cases in the future than that coronavirus is here to stay for the longer term, I think there will be much more confidence that we'll be able to manage it as a healthcare system. Um, more confidently
1: one thing i've seen i mean it's just on twitter that there have been a few papers seem to have come out about these so-called super spreading events and the idea that focusing on those, that cluster busting is one term that i've seen used for it is um maybe is one way more effective way of targeting contact tracing efforts rather than every single person who's been infected is that something that you're aware of that the uk is trying to do or is it still that the aim is still to to find every contact of everyone who's been been infected.
0: Well, I, uh, neither Sonia nor I are epidemiologists, so so we sort of go on um, what we see in the scientific literature and, and as it gets reported to us by colleagues. Um, it, it does seem that um, with this particular virus, as perhaps for many other infectious diseases, um, there are super spreading events, and they may be extremely important drivers. Uh, of um, infection, it, it seems likely from what I've read that that becomes particularly important when the number of cases overall is rather low uh, to sort of find and eliminate these super spreader events. So that could be, you know, one part of the strategy. Um, I, I, I think um, it's fair to say that with with this disease, um, you sort of have to attack it from every angle that you can. And um, preventing super spreader events is, is clearly one very important you know, uh, strategy that you should focus on. Uh, so I suppose a a recent example would be the, um, so when South Korea, um, relaxed its regulations on nightclubs and so on, they obviously have a very effective test and trace, um, uh, policy, uh, in place. They had a super spreader event apparently centered on one or possibly a smaller, small number of individuals visiting multiple nightclubs, um, in the same evening and And that generated just about uh, just under two hundred cases uh, as if i if I recall sort of correctly so um even when you do have a, a really good test and track uh, system in place, it will still be important to prevent these events There's there's, there's no doubt about it
2: so as, suppose we probably understand a bit more about or at least can think have thought more widely about um reopening of the NHS what that what that will require, what that looks like, because at the moment the NHS has been, although the message is is obviously to come to hospital if you need to, it's still all the elective work has been suspended during this time, and reopening the NHS to the elective work and then dealing with what is a real backlog of um, of work that is built up over the over the months of lockdown requires some serious thinking about how the testing strategy is deployed. Uh, to ensure a safe and, and effective of, of opening of elective work again, um, some of the thinking that we've been doing around that has been the idea that that, that um, as as organizations reopen, there are different cohorts of people who actually need a different style or a different workflow um, for testing, so the testing of populations, for example, or community testing is different to the testing of a patient who's waiting to have uh, surgery the following week. Um, and those, those different groups of people uh, require quite a lot of thought about what pathway they're going to go into for their test. It needs a totally different turnaround time, for example. Um, so imagining how the testing strategy will meet the needs of all these different groups of people will meet the need of somebody who won't needs surgery the following week. Uh, is preoperative, somebody who needs a diagnostic test in the NHS and needs to come to a hospital for that um, uh, versus somebody who's an inpatient who needs the decision needs to be taken over whether they're going to move to one ward or another ward versus somebody who's at home and self-isolating for seven days um, and can have a test result back in, in five days time and it won't change their their actions. Those are very, very different groups of people. And so far, our testing strategy hasn't thought very carefully about cohorting people into their different needs, and therefore delivering the right test, the right turnaround time to the right individual at that time. And those strategies really do need to be in place. And we're really aware of those different strategies for the NHS. But I think they're applicable to the whole of society reopening as well.
1: I mean, just purely anecdotally, the, the two people and two people I know who've who've died both appear to have contracted COVID nineteen in hospital in the same hospital actually. So they which they'd gone into for quite different reasons. So clearly there is a the danger of spreading in hospitals. It,
0: you're right. It, it is clear there has been uh, transmission within hospitals. Um, there is uh, there was a report in the Guardian suggesting that this has been known about for some while and that up to 20% of cases might fall into that category. Um, There's nothing, as it were, officially uh, out there. And uh, I've not seen any of the the data myself that would, um, as it were, definitely support that conclusion. Um, We're inferring it, I think, from um, uh, data, for example, from seroprevalence studies. So this is to look at uh, how many of your healthcare workers have become infected. Uh, there's a preprint out, excellent preprint out from colleagues in Birmingham showing that in, in some areas of a hospital, particularly where there's lower amounts of personal protective equipment being used, um, that the prevalence uh, w- was over 30% in, in many cases. So these are, um, people who you know that at some time in the past few months have contracted coronavirus working in the hospital. So it's likely that this kind of transmission has been taking place. It's, again, likely that in order to prevent it, um, you need um, all sorts of procedures in place, testing, certainly, good quality PPE, awareness from staff that they don't, um, you know, uh, spread it between themselves to make sure that they are socially distancing and to prevent fomite transmission. So fomite transmission is, um, you you know, uh, when you've got little droplets that land on objects and then get picked up, that also appears to be a possible route of transmission in hospitals. So there's lots, I think, um, that, uh, you know, we need to do in the NHS to continue to make the NHS safe. Um, at the moment, we think the prevalence is probably quite low, um, in amongst hospital staff because of we're, you know, doing lots of testing and not seeing many positive results. But obviously, when lockdown, uh, starts to be lifted, we may again see an increase and, and we'll have to be extremely vigilant.
1: Um, on the question of testing, that one of the puzzling things comparing between different countries that in, sort of in the UK and in Italy and in France, the case fatality rate seems to be quite high, 14-15%, which is about three times the rate in Germany. Does that imply that there are lots of people who have had it, who haven't been tested, that we haven't found out about?
0: Yes. So so the the case fatality rate that that, that you mentioned, that's an enormous overestimate because we are Greatly underestimating the number of people who actually have uh, contracted this if you just go by uh, the number who've had a positive test. We, I mean, we just, as we know, we have not had adequate testing capacity um, for a long time um, uh, at a critical phase of this pandemic. So uh, you can't infer sort of true case fatality rates uh, from, from those sorts of data. People talk a lot about the infection fatality rate. So that's the chance that you will die given that you're infected uh, with the virus. It's a little bit of a misleading thing in a way because the the infection fatality rate varies so enormously depending on the population that you're talking about but the the best estimates of the overall infection fatality rate are you know between half a percent and one percent depending on the population um in New York it looks like it might be about one percent and uh in in London it looks like it might be about half a percent but but um you know we don't absolutely know either of those figures and um, in, in a way, focusing on that is not perhaps the main issue. Uh, it, it's really what this virus does to your healthcare systems that's that's so damaging. Um, and you've hit, heard Tony talking about all the ways in which we've had to suspend elective care or deliver elective care in, in very different ways. And, and that really is because of the virus. It's not because of the lockdown. It's because of the virus. We're talking about opening up the NHS very cautiously to, to new cases, Um, We need to be perhaps even more cautious about opening up other areas of um, society where, you know, the function is obviously less vital. I'm personally speaking rather nervous about our exit from lockdown. I do not have a a sort of a good feeling about it if we can't implement a a test and trace policy uh, simultaneously. I suspect we will get a second wave if we don't manage to do that.
1: And is there any way of estimating or beginning to estimate how many people may have been infected who haven't had a test and haven't tested positive. and Because one of the, I suppose, people who are sceptical, if that's the right word, about lockdown, this view, but, oh, probably loads of people have had it already, and actually, you know, the whole herd immunity thing, maybe it's it's working.
0: Sure, so, so you get this sort of data from what we call seroprevalence studies. So these are looking for the presence of antibodies against the virus... In, in people's bloodstreams. Now, until recently, we've not had good accurate tests for that. Um, I mentioned a couple in the article, the Abbott and Roche tests, there are other commercial tests that are available. And, um, you know, certain hospitals and research institutes have developed their own in-house tests, um, which can be very accurate. Um, the government seroprevalence data, which is now in the public domain, suggests that about 17%, that's one seven percent of London uh, had developed antibodies uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, and obviously we've not had a high rate of infection since then. So we might expect roughly 20% of London and roughly 5% of the rest of the UK to have become infected. Um, so um, uh, there are all sorts of reasons to think that sustained herd immunity won't be possible um, uh, with this virus without a vaccine, but to get any sort of useful herd immunity effect um you would you know need sort of 50 or 60% at least of the population um to 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 have antibodies which are functional to, to sort of sort of have a a large herd immunity effect and you know again i'm not an epidemiologist but the sort of calculations you would traditionally make would suggest that you'd need between 60 and 80% of a population to have uh, useful immunity before this virus would start to um fizzle out by itself so we're
1: nowhere near that. I, I think that's important to state that we're, we're absolutely nowhere near that. And in terms of for individuals, as you wrote in your article, assuming that probable infection means definite immunity is a very big mistake. So that people who think, oh, I've, I was ill, I probably had it. I can I don't need to worry about lockdown anymore. I can go out and about because I'm immune and I can't infect anyone is a is, is a wrong way to think.
0: That's ex- Exactly right. So there was a, a very nice study from Florian Kramer's group in in New York, uh, where they showed that you know upwards of ninety nine percent of people who had a definite case developed antibodies after some of them after a long period of time, but they were, all developed antibodies. And obviously, New York has been a very highly and this is New York City, a very highly infected area, with some seroprevalence studies there suggesting it might be around twenty five percent of the population um, have become infected. So the people who thought they'd been infected had symptoms compatible with coronavirus. Um, It's sort of, you know, mid-30s percent of people actually developed antibodies suggesting they actually really did have the virus. And, um, you know, as many as two-thirds might, in fact, have had something completely different and not be immune in any way. Um, so, yes, just because you had a nasty uh, bout of a flu-like illness in late March does not mean that you can assume you had Uh, antibodies um, and that you're immune Uh, and that's an important message to get across.
1: And at some point if it were possible to test where we had the capacity to test everyone who had a flu-like illness in late March and they showed the presence of certain antibodies would that then be a strong indicator that they probably had COVID or is that
0: well, yes. I mean, uh, if you're talking about a very good antibody test, then more or less by definition, it would be a good predictor of whether or not someone had had the, had the virus. Um, the data on the, the Rush and Abbott tests looks reasonably good. They perhaps, um, ha, have a, a little bit lower sensitivity than you'd like, particularly in the sort of first few weeks after an infection, but they're quite specific. Uh, it won't give you a, a large number of, of, of false positives. Um, and there are other tests which are being developed, which may become uh, available, which might be better. It's probably not realistic to um, test the entire population, but uh, healthcare workers are being screened um, in, in in certain hospitals, and we'll probably get the results of those studies um, quite soon, I would think. So we'll have a good idea of how many healthcare
1: workers have got infected. And are those related to those that the other thing you write you? another thing you wrote about in your piece was this question of spike the way that the virus gets into cells and that the more that you, you and your colleagues are learning about the way the virus works and how that might lead to ways to to prevent it to you know how to block spike as you as you put it has anything changed on that since you wrote the piece
0: uh well there's lots of lots of studies have come out um exploring immune responses to spike so uh, Almost all of them would suggest that if you have antibodies which actually prevent spike from binding to the receptor on cells, that that will prevent infection. So that's, you know, very good news from a vaccine point of view that, you know, if you can develop blocking antibodies to this, you know, that would be strongly predicted to um, prevent infection. There have been some nice studies out uh, showing that milder infection leads to uh, less pronounced antibody responses. So so there's all sorts of different antibodies, um and most of the time when people talk about antibodies they mean a particular subclass called IgG, that's the sort of the main one that is in the bloodstream. There's a, a different sort of antibody called IgA, which is produced predominantly at mucosal surfaces, so in the in the in the mouth and in in the lungs and so on. And it may be that um, different IgA responses could be quite important in preventing uh, reinfection uh, uh, with this virus. So there's all sorts of things which are coming out um, about uh, immunity. There's still a lot <laughs> a lot that we don't understand. Um, the strange sort of inflammatory conditions that Sonia was referring to earlier almost certainly are a consequence of some aberrant um, form of immune response. I think it's fair to say we don't really understand those well at all at the moment. But I suppose um, in terms of blocking spike, the sort of the simple thing is that antibodies that you raise in response to vaccination or infection that block spike um, are very likely to protect you from this illness. So, so that in a sense is good news.
1: And in your piece, Rupert, you said that you had a bet with a colleague that you think, or you hope, your optimistic thought is that there will be a vaccine in around 18 months. Is that still, are you still optimistic?
0: I I am, actually. And um, I mean, the most optimistic scenario is the one that the Oxford group and AstraZeneca have been telling us that um, they will be able to roll out a substantial number of um, vaccines to be delivered by September. Um, That's the most optimistic scenario. You you have to hope that we're very lucky uh, in that sense that we um, show that this vaccine really works, that it elicits a, a fair amount of protective immunity um, and that there's no problems, no hitches with production, that you know, there are no problems with safety and, and so on. But that's the most optimistic scenario. I think that the most pessimistic scenario would be that it's impossible to develop a vaccine uh, and that if you try to develop a vaccine, the antibodies that you raise end up making the virus worse. Now, that you know was a theoretical worry, certainly a few months ago. Um, there's nothing so far that I've seen or that has been reported that would make that a likely outcome uh, for this virus. Um, That really would have been the worst case scenario. I think from a vaccine point of view so far, um, the more optimistic scenario
1: is fortunately looking a bit likelier. Sonia, do you share Rupert's relative optimism? Uh,
2: Yes, I, I defer to Rupert's optimistic and pessimistic boundaries which I think are entirely right and I, I, I suppose the only other thing to add into the mix is the question of whether the vaccine trial in its current time frame will now be able to infer protection or not given the fact that the um, prevalence is so low at the moment so are we able to work out whether the vaccine is infected you'll need a, a minimum number of people who've had the vaccine to uh, be exposed. Uh, to the virus to be able to know whether the vaccine afforded protection or not. Uh, and that becomes increasingly difficult as the prevalence is very low.
1: Is that true around the world, that in terms of the, in, in the United States or or in Brazil, that there are countries where it seems to be more out of control than it is in the UK or certainly other countries in Europe?
2: It's certainly true that it's an asynchronous um, uh, across a country as well as across the world and there will be and are um new epicenters and and hot so so while the prevalence is low in london for example that's that's not true for, for other cases but well maybe rupert will comment on what that means for understanding the vaccine trial um
0: so yes as i understand it they're also running uh trials in in brazil and the, the united states um as Sunday points out, it's a very good problem to have. You know, not too much of the virus around at the moment in the community, um, and therefore, you know, it may, it may take a while to demonstrate efficacy uh, in the United Kingdom. It's uh, you know not super easy to predict, and it does depend a little bit on the kinds of readouts that you're expecting from this uh, vaccine. So, there's been some speculation, particularly about the Oxford vaccine that it might induce a degree of immunity that protects an individual from developing pneumonia but doesn't prevent them from developing an upper respiratory tract infection. Now, that's an extrapolation from a small study on uh, monkeys. So, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't base too much on that. But um, it's certainly possible that the, the vaccine will protect against serious disease but won't protect, won't give you what we call sterilizing immunity, won't, won't protect at all, uh, w- won't protect against um, infection uh, taking place in a, in, a, in, a, in a milder way. I mean, a vaccine which prevented you from getting pneumonia would still be a very big advance. I mean, let's not, let's not uh, understate that. But um, it, it might mean that the vaccine is less effective if, you, if your plan was to target it, for example, at healthcare workers to stop them spreading the infection around. So it, it may take a while to demonstrate efficacy. Um, particularly if your your readout is nasopharyngeal carriage. But my like I say, my expectation is that either this vaccine or another vaccine, so there are at least two others that have shown really good promising data in, in animal models, that one of these will be effective and, and that once we've managed to vaccinate a substantial proportion of the population, we will be out of this
1: crisis, uh, at least to a large extent. But in the meantime... We still need to keep our distance from each other, stay at home if we can, not make unnecessary journeys, wear masks, wash our hands and keep following all those rules about not spreading.
0: Yes, I, I think um, if, if what you mean by stay alert is do all of
1: those things, then stay alert is about right. <laughs> <laughs> Rupert Beale and Sonia Gandhi, thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Rupert Beale's piece on how to block spike in the current issue of the LRB and a new issue will be out tomorrow with Elliot Weinberger on Covid-19 in America, John Lanchester on Inspector Macrae, and Susan Pedersen on Sheila Delaney. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.